Sorry about that. I needed a cough switch. <clears throat> Sorry. You know, when we're t- thinking about prayer, and as you move through Sunday school over these next three months in Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, and you're going to look at Paul's prayers, and you're going to look at the elements and the things that he prays for. And, and as I said this morning, to a great extent, you're going to find that a lot of the things that Paul prays for are not exactly like the things we pray for. His focus is a little different. His focus is not so turned toward himself as it is turned toward the church and toward, toward, turned toward God and, and his glory and, and all of that. And, and, and sometimes that can bring real conviction. Sometimes, it, all the time, it should bring real conviction to us. Uh, when we see how the scripture directs us in prayer and then how sometimes we tend to be more self-absorbed even in our prayer time if we pray at all. And and a real danger is that we let prayer kind of, as I said, become the last resort rather than what is the first thing we do and what is the most important thing we do when we come to prayer. I remember reading years ago, and, and by the way, I think I'm going to have, I'm going to make some copies of these, and we'll have them out on the welcome desk, and you can just pick one up if you want to. We'll put about 25 out there, and if those go, we'll put 25 more. But I remember several years ago reading a little booklet by Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, entitled A Simple Way to Pray. And, and in that book, Luther breaks down several things, but, but basically, the best part of the part I enjoy the most is the introduction as Luther talks about it because Luther wrote this little booklet. And here's the great theologian. Here's the, the great master of, of justification by faith alone. Here's the one who, who really called the church that has strayed into all sorts of unbiblical practices, called the church back to the church, and was literally renowned throughout all the world in his day. Here, here's Martin Luther who goes to get a haircut. And while he's sitting in the barber's chair, uh, his barber asks him, Dr. Luther, how do you pray? And, and Martin Luther went away and wrote a little booklet, a little treatise, if you will, strictly for his barber and brought it back to him. I suppose, I don't know if it was the next time he got a haircut or a few times afterwards when it was exactly, but it brought it back to his barber and he gave him this and said, here is the best I can tell you about a simple way to pray. And in that little simple way to pray, he says it's really kind of easy. It's kind of simple. said there are several guides that you can follow when you're reading the Scripture. One is, is follow the model prayer in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 that Brother Ricky read this morning, you know, the, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and it is the Lord's Prayer that he is giving to disciples. It's not the Lord's Prayer that he could pray because... He asked for forgiveness in there for sin, and there is no sin in him, so that's not the way he would pray necessarily, but it's how he says we ought to pray. And Luther said, just break that down. There's about seven elements within there. <clears throat> you know, start out with worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Just spend some time there worshiping him, talking about his holiness, speaking back to him his attributes and his glorious nature. You know, holy be your name. Uh, and and he, he walked on through it. He said, you know, uh, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. Luther said of that, pray that God's will become reality throughout all our, the countryside and throughout our government and throughout everything else, but also pray that your will be done in my life. 
as it is in heaven, perfectly in accordance with all that God desires. Pray that that would become a reality in your life and then in the life of the church and then in the life of the nation. We certainly ought to be praying that today as I led us in earlier. You'll probably catch here when I was leading that prayer earlier, I was thinking about this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. After worship, after seeking God's will and, and seeking His purposes, then He comes to give us this day our daily bread. Now, there's nothing wrong with bringing petitions before God. There's nothing wrong with asking God uh, for the needs that we have and asking for Him to provide it. He says, I, I know what your needs are. I'm going to provide for you. If I take care of the lilies of the field and clothe them, if I take care of the, of the birds of the air, surely I'm going to take care of my children. You know that's going to happen. But there's nothing wrong with telling him what you see your needs to be and asking for those needs. Give us this day our daily bread, that which is necessary for sustenance for this day. And then forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us those trespasses that we have brought against you and against others. And, of course, we know from Psalm 51 that ultimately and finally sin against others is really sin against God. When David said, you know, after his encounter with Bathsheba and his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and all the others, and he said, you know, against you and you alone have I sinned. And so here, Jesus says, pray that your sins would be forgiven. Seek his face, seek his forgiveness, and acknowledge that you will be forgiving those who have also sinned against you. You know, I look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I come to that fourth and fifth chapter when he talks about these and and he says, you know, you're to, to love one another and you're to forgive one another. Uh, even as Christ, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And I often tell people when I'm using that text, either whether it's in marital counseling or premarital counseling or whatever it is, relational counseling, I'll say, you know, it would have been easy if, if Paul had just said, look, forgive one another. But he adds that caveat, and I think that's what Jesus is adding here by implication, Forgive others in the same manner that God has forgiven you. No one has sinned against you more than you have sinned against God. And God has forgiven you if you're in Christ of all that sin, past, present, and future. He's cared for that. He's dealt with that. And we're to forgive one another in the same manner. So pray for God to forgive us, cleanse us, set us free from anything that's holding on to our life, and con commit and, and, and ask God's grace and power to be able to forgive those who have sinned against us and deliver us from temptation and evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, the, the idea there, Scripture is clear that God doesn't tempt us to sin. And, and Jesus isn't implying there that God does, but he's saying there, Lord, pray that God would lead you away from temptation, direct you away from temptation. Much like if you're driving down the highway going home tonight, and you see a big yellow flashing light that says, you know, road out ahead, take it seriously and go another way. Don't say, oh, well, I don't really believe it's out. I think I can do that without any trouble. Uh, you know, just realize there's, that God puts signs there and, and warnings there for our benefit. So, Lord, lead us not in temptation. Show me where the potholes are. Show me where the... Show me where the road is out in my life and lead me in another way. Deliver me from the evil that will come from following that. I mean, so, so Luther said, I'm not going to give you the whole booklet here. I'll, have, I'll leave you plenty to read. But Luther said, use the, the model prayer in Matthew 6. He says, and this is all an introduction, by the way. And, and then he says, use, um, uh, 
use the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments give you the ten basic laws, moral law of God. Pray in accordance with the moral law. And you can read how you do that under him. And he says, use something we Baptists don't think a lot about, although, I, as I said <clears throat> about five years ago when I preached a series of sermons on it, we were probably the only Baptist church in the state of Kentucky that had ever done that. But he said, use the Apostles' Creed. You know, the, the elements of the Apostles' Creed is worship and prayer to guide us. And so, so Luther said, here are some ways that you can, you can focus on prayer simply that, and have a guide for praying in your everyday life. And so when Jesus gives this, and then Paul in his prayers that you're going to be looking at in depth over the next months, uh, Jesus is saying to us, listen, here are some models. And, and I think we ought to take our prayer life and the model prayers of Scripture and say, how do they measure? How do they weigh against one another? Am I praying biblically? Am I praying in line with Scripture? Or am I kind of praying traditionally and, and, and kind of praying just out of the way it's always been done? And what I heard my grandmama pray, I heard somebody say, the other day, I just want to be able to pray like grandmama prayed. I don't know how grandmama prayed in that person's life, but I, I did want to say to them, I didn't. I was very kind and gentle and pastoral. But I did want to say, you know, there may be a better guide than how grandmama prayed, than, than that, and you might ought to look to Scripture for that. Scripture gives us clear understanding about what prayer ought to be and how it ought to be in our daily lives. If you've been around me long, you know that one of my favorite definitions of prayer is a definition that was given by John Bunyan, a, a Puritan and a, a, the writer of the classic, the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress. And in his book on prayer, he gave a definition of, of what prayer is. And it's a very simple definition, uh, but it breaks down very well into about oh, seven different elements of what true prayer is. And, and you've probably, if you've been here a long time, you've heard me walk through this before. But I think as we're entering into a, a study of prayer, it helps us to keep this in mind. So I want you to hear it again, if you would, uh, just briefly tonight. This is his definition. This is Bunyan's full definition of prayer. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Now, in that definition, Bunyan just kind of takes it all in and kind of draws everything Scripture teaches about prayer and brings it together in a nice little four-line definition and bundles it up very nicely for us. <clears throat> but all of those elements that he talks about in there are scriptural elements of prayer. Take the first one, for instance. Prayer is a sincere pouring out of the so heart or the soul to God. It's a pouring out of that which is within. It's a crying out. When, when, when Paul said in, in Romans and in Galatians, he said, listen, when we're given the spirit of adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father. It's, it's not a passive thing there. Paul uses the terminology, we cry out, we scream out, we yell out to God, Abba, Father, reaching out as a small child, a baby would, to its father, its mother, its parent, that it loves and needs security and presence from. And Bunyan says that genuine prayer, real prayer, true prayer, 
It is a poor, a sincere, and, and sincere might very well be the operative word there, a sincere pouring out of the soul to God. There is to be sincerity in prayer. In, in Proverbs 15:8, Solomon writes this. He said, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. <clears throat> now, now, the prayer of the of the wicked would be the prayer of those who are outside of Christ, those who are not adopted into the family. And, and it's an abomination of the Lord. Those cries are not out of sincerity. They're out of, they're out of, uh, of selfishness. They're out of their own wanton desires. And, and yet the, the, the prayer of the, of the upright, the prayer of those who have the righteousness of Christ, that is a delight to the Lord. And that is to be a sincere pouring out before God. Prayer is a sincere pouring out. Then Bunyan's second part of that is prayer is a sincere and sensible pouring out of the soul. Sometimes people act like when you really pray, you lose your senses. You you don't think. But prayer is to be a thinking process. Prayer is to be a a sensible thing, not just an emotional thing. We're to do it with our will. We're to do it with our logic. We're to do it with our thinking as well as with our feeling. Psalm 103, (coughs) forgive me again, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4, the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, that is, think about what he has done. He pardons all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit of hell. Who He crowns you with loving kindness and with compassion. I mean, that's a sensible thinking about all that he has done. And when we worship him, we worship him as, as Jesus says, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, by thinking about his attributes. But we also sensibly pour out our soul based on what he has accomplished and what he has done in our own lives, what he has done for us and in us. And we do that with great joy. Thirdly, prayer is a sincere and sensible and affectionate pouring out of the soul to God. It's it's sincere, it's sensible, and it's affectionate. It it, it is with with the affections. It is with love. It, It is with feeling. Uh, affections are a part of our feeling nature and so there's this feeling and and the psalmist reminds us in psalm 42 1 as the deer pants for the water so my soul pants for you oh god i mean there's a there's a thirsting and there's a hungering that is to be a very real part of our prayer life as we come before the lord jesus we come before God our Father. So it's sincere and sensible and affectionate. And then fourthly, Bunyan makes this definition that prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ by the strength or the assistance of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is not in our own strength. Prayer is not something that we are just to conjure up. Prayer is something that we are to, to, to seek his aid and his help in. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, also helps our weaknesses. 
For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Again, our our prayers are to be in the power and the strength and and the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. It's it's not just a human exercise. Our human faculties are involved in it, no doubt. We think, we we feel, we, we, we will in our prayer life, but it's a matter of really coming before God and saying, Father, I am too weak sometimes to pray, and I need your assistance. I need your help. I need for you to pray with me, and I need you to pray through me. And I need the assistance of your Holy Spirit. Prayer is the sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart and soul to God through Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And fifthly, it's for such things as God has promised according to his word. You know, a lot of things we pray for that God has not promised. Matter of fact, if you take an inventory of our prayers many times... We're praying for things that God has neither said he will or will not do. He's never guaranteed. He's not said, this is, I'm going to give you this. And, you know, the the whole health and wealth prosperity gospel is built upon this idea of, well, we just tell God what we want and God is obligated somehow to give it to us. Boy, that is about as far from biblical truth as you will ever find. God is not obligated to give us anything. God is not obligated to provide us with anything. He says, if you're my child, I'm going to give you all your needs. I'm going to give you covering and, and clothing and food, and, and I'll, I'll care for you. But he never promises anything beyond that. It's very easy to see if you look at Scripture very carefully. The one thing he promises more than he does any of that kind of stuff is suffering and pain and, and, and persecution and, and being hated because he was hated. And, and Those are the kind of things we don't really pray for, though, do we? We actually pray that we wouldn't get any of those things. We pray that none of those would be a part of our life or a part of our reality. Oh, Lord, keep me, keep me from pain and suffering and sickness. And, and, Lord, by all means, keep me from being hated because of the gospel's sake and keep me from being persecuted anyway. We pray for things that God never promised. Bunyan says, <coughs> our prayer <coughs> is to be for such things as God has promised according to his word. Psalm 119.25 says, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. When David says, my, my soul cleaves to the dust, he's basically saying, I'm about as low as I can get. I'm about as humble as I can get before God. I, I, I don't have anything to offer myself. My soul cleaves to the dust, Lord. Revive me according to your word. It's, it's in the word that we find the promises for strength and revival and, and, and the promises for, for what he wants in our life. Or Psalm 119, 49, remember the word of your, to your servant in which you have made me to hope. David says, I, I, Lord, I want you to remember the word you've given to me. I'm hoping in that. I'm trusting in what you have said and what you have promised. I'm not hoping against, I'm not hoping for anything that you haven't promised. And sixthly, Bunyan says it's for the good of the church. For the good of the church. You're going to find that 
in the studies of Paul's prayers over the next months. You're going to find that Paul's prayers are, are asking things for the body, asking for spiritual renewal, asking for spiritual strength, asking for the church to be the church and to bring glory to God. Uh, you're going to find that Paul is, is praying for them in some, some beautiful ways. And I, I've got a few of them just here before me. You'll study these later, but Philippians 1, 9 through 11 Paul says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Paul is praying there that the church would be holy and that individual believers within the body of Christ would be holy. That, that they would be filled with discernment, filled with knowledge of God, abounding in love more and more, approving the things that are excellent, the things of God, sincere and blameless, and bearing the fruit, filled up with the fruit of righteousness. Fruit of righteousness is just showing the fruit of Christ. Christ's likeness and His character. Or Ephesians 1, 16-21. Paul says, we do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the true riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I mean, there's an eschatological nature to that prayer of the Apostle Paul there. He's praying that the church will see the glory of Christ in their lives and in their ministries here, but he's acknowledging that that praise is not going to end, begin and end with them. It's going to continue right on into eternity. And they are to seek that, desire that, and pray that for one another. Or one other one. <coughs> Colossians 1, 9-13. Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I mean, Paul is just simply pouring out his heart that they would know God's will. That, that it was not what their will was and what they wanted or what they desired, but it's that they would know God's will, be filled with the knowledge of His will, with spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's what we're to pray for, for one another. 
And that ought to be the essence. That ought to be the heart of our prayers. Of course, you, not long ago we were in John, and we looked at John 17, and we saw that high priestly prayer of Jesus there, where he prayed for the church and, and basically prayed for the same type things that Paul did. And in verse 13 of chapter 17 of John's gospel, he prays that you may have my, they may have my joy made full in themselves. He prays that we will understand what it means to have joy in Christ. That is, to, to know that he's in control of all things, and our trust is in him, and our faith is in him. Secondly, that, 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 we, would not, we, are, that we are not in the world as he was not in the world, that we are to be sanctified, that is, made holy. He prays that, that we will be a holy people, not a holier-than-thou people, not a, not a phony holiness, but a genuine godliness living before Christ. He says the way that will happen is by knowing the truth. He said, sanctify them, make them holy in, tr- in the truth. Your word is truth. So he wants us to know joy and holiness and truth. Then he sends us on mission. He said, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. We are on mission every day, and Jesus prays that we will see that mission, know that mission, be obedient to that mission. Paul is praying the same thing. He prays, fifthly, that there will be a unity, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Union with Christ and union with one another is a gift of God. Guarding the unity that will be visible is our responsibility by his power and by his strength. And Jesus prays for that. And finally, he prays for us to love one another. That the love in which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That we will love, they will love one another. He said earlier in John 13 that by this all men will know that you're my disciples, and that you'll love one another. He says here, it's by their unity, by their oneness, by their demonstrating that visible unity, that the world will believe that Jesus really came from God, that he is who he said he was. I mean, it's all wrapped up in what the church is to be. That's why Paul spends so much time praying for the church and for a spiritual reformation of prayer within the church. And that's what we ought to pray for too. And finally, in Bunyan's definition, his final phrase is simply this, with submission in faith to the will of God. With submission in faith to the will of God. That is, we come to say, as he said in Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, I don't want this cup. I don't, I, I'm not looking forward to this. It's not something I would have desired. But, Father, if, it, if it's got to be not my will, but your will be done. Or in 1 John 5, 15, excuse me, 5, 14 and 15, when John writes, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. But again, the caveat, the, the central part of that, the most important part of that is in his will. Whatever we ask according to his will. You see, a great part of prayer is not telling God stuff. 
We talk to him. We talk to our father. We communicate with him. And, and there's a telling thing there. But a real major part of prayer, folks, is that we might find, know, and, and grasp and understand what his will is in our life. That's where we find it. It's in prayer. It's where we find it going before him with the word and, and praying the word. And you, you've heard us talk about praying the scriptures back to him, praying the Psalms. And, and that's an important part of coming before him. You know, I think Bunyan had a pretty good definition of what prayer is and a pretty good understanding of how we ought to approach prayer. It is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Break it down scripturally and think it through and we get a picture of what our prayer life is to be like you know i'm not one opposed to using aids in prayer i tell people all the time you know if you just don't feel like praying go pick a psalm and and pray through that psalm Uh, take psalm 119 and pray through eight chapters a day as as that breaks down and, and moves through the entire Hebrew alphabet with some acrostic there that you won't understand the acrostic because you don't know Hebrew, but that's what it does. It's a great basis for prayer. Uh, get something like Valley of Vision. You've heard me refer to that a lot, Puritan prayers. Just simple Puritan prayers. Take you about three minutes to read it, but meditate on it and think about it and look at it and think about how those prayers are directed Godward and churchward, church toward the church, and, and, and pray that. There's a new book that's just come out. It, it's quickly becoming one of my favorites from my own morning devotions. It's called, entitled Prone to Wander. And there's a couple of copies. This is one of them, back in the book nook. You know, and it, it's just subtitled Prayers of Confession and Celebration. And you say, well, I, well, I want to pray somebody else's prayer of confession because I'll guarantee if you take a minute and work through it, you'll find that those prayers of confessions are prayers of confessions that you need to be praying. I certainly do. They give a a scripture, a call to confession. Then they give a prayer of confession. Then they give an assurance of pardon by scripture. And then it talks even about some hymns that go along with the idea that that day is presented. It's a great tool. I'm going to make copies available out on the the welcome center of of Luther's, a simple way to pray. I mean, there are just a lot of things that can aid us in getting us focused in prayer that are good and spiritual and biblical and I I encourage you and urge you to do that as we think about prayer these next three months that you would you would see some real growth in your own prayer life I had one lady come to me this morning she said I was just amazed this morning in the whole service I didn't get to come to Sunday school so I wasn't sure what we're doing there this morning but said you know I only made one New Year's resolution that's one more than I made but she's only made one New Year's resolution and I said, oh, really? She said, what? She said I, made I want to learn how to pray. I really want to learn to pray. And, and said, it just really made sense this morning. You said, start out by learning to talk to your father. And so it's such a, <clears throat> such a simple thing, but such an important thing. In these days to come, I pray that our church will be strengthened because we have focused on what it means to be a praying people, seeking his face, seeking his will, and pouring out our hearts to him. Let's pray together.